I had done meditation, I'd done yoga, I had been to shamans, I had done all this other work. But until I had an embodied experience of safety facilitated by psilocybin, I was stuck. So I'm not here to say that, you know, that's the case for everybody, but morally, ethically, for anybody to have the right to take that opportunity away from me or from anybody else, I feel is is ethically, morally wrong. You know, I, I am aware that psilocybin is illegal. And I actually had, I met with a therapist recently and she was saying, well, that's illegal. And, I, and, and I'm here in the deep South. It wasn't that long ago that freeing a slave was illegal too. Whoever the people are that are able to stand up and say, the law is immoral. This is an unethical law. That's where I stand. As a woman with the right to connect with the divine, that is my right. I believe that's my birthright. The amazing thing about the mushrooms is that they speak. They talk to you. They will answer questions, carry on conversations. Psilocybin just pulls up a chair on the porch and puts its feet up. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Psilocybin Says. This is Courtney Rose. And Eric Osborne. In today's episode, we're talking with Laura Solomon. Laura is a nurse practitioner who had her first legal psilocybin experience a year and a half ago, I believe it was, in Amsterdam. And it changed the trajectory of her life. It actually inspired her to write a book called Wounds to Wisdom that documents her journey through religious trauma, recovery, other forms of abuse, and now her introduction into the world of psychedelics. It is a wonderful and sincere conversation that we know you will enjoy. And we also recorded it on video. So if you're not here already on YouTube, head over to our YouTube channel and watch us uh, talk with Laura there. Uh, when you're there, go ahead and please like the video and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit the little bell to receive notifications when we post new episodes every week. We really hope you enjoy this one. As always, thanks for listening. Hey, Laura. Hey. It's so good to have you here on our podcast, Psilocybin Says. Uh, and I'm just really looking forward to hearing more about you and your journey uh, as a health practitioner and also uh, your your journey personally um, in healing and with psychedelics as a part of that. Well, thank you for having me. I'm happy to share. Yeah. So just take our listeners you know, through some of your background that first brought you into um, being a support for others in, in, in their healing journey. And then we'll use that as a way to kind of move towards the psychedelics. If you would. Yeah. Okay. So it's a little challenge to know where to start the story. Um, <laughs> Cause it's almost like I could go from lifetimes ago, or do I just start in this lifetime? Right. Right. But, uh, we'll just start with this one. And <laughs> okay. so I was raised in a small town and in a Christian you know, the word cult is a strong word, but I think it does apply here mm. in that we were um, very isolated from the community at large. It was a family uh, uh, set up. So my uncle was the minister. My dad was a deacon. My mom sang in the choir. We sang in the choir. You know, they are, my grandmother was the matriarch of the church. 
So it was very much this family anchored um, church. There was, it was, it, it was very blended. There wasn't really any separation between the family and the church. It was the same. Mm-hmm. And it, there was a lot of positive to it. It was a really clean lifestyle. We, we didn't drink any alcohol. We, of course, didn't smoke. We we didn't go to the movies. We didn't go to dances. We didn't go to sporting events. I mean, we went to church and we were at home and we were with family. We grew our own food. So there was a lot about it that was really beautiful and um, lovely. And I think that's that's one of the things that can make being in a cult situation complex and challenging because there is a sense of community a sense of bond, a sense of love. And so then when the darker aspects or the more negative aspects come in, it's really confusing. Mm -hmm. And so there was also mental illness and violence in this setting. And in the setting, a lot of that was somewhat normalized and kind of framed up in the religious aspect. So then there's also this element of of God and what does God want from you and what does God expect of you and, you know, what is your relationship with God? And so it was really mixed, a lot of things mixed up together, a lot of really important things mixed up together. And I, you know, like any child, I thought that was normal. We, We also did not have a television my grandmother had a television and we would go over on Tuesday night and watch Happy Days. But we, I don't know if you remember giving my age away, but but right after Happy Days, Three's Company came on. Do okay. either of you remember that show? I do remember I watched show. Happy Days. I, I probably I watched actually, every episode of Happy Days. So For some reason, we were, I, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I, don't like <laughs> I just, uh, Three's Company, there is some kind of very weird memory I feel like that was my first introduction into alternative lifestyles without well, really knowing it yeah well what's interesting is we were allowed to watch happy days mm-hmm. but we were not allowed to watch three's company because three's company were, were two women and a man living in an apartment and they talked about sex and so it was really really racy we weren't mm-hmm. allowed mm-hmm. to watch that but it, it and, and it was also a small town so I think even if it hadn't been the religious environment. I was still also in this kind of sheltered small town environment, you know, mm-hmm. so a lot of that was normalized. And then I, I gradually, I got a job right out of high school and I was working in an office and I was still in that small town, didn't go off to college, didn't leave because in, in growing up, you didn't leave my, it was not normal to leave your father's house unless you were married. Hmm. So And you weren't allowed to date boys who were not in the church. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the church was really small. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a recipe for disaster. And I'm just going to be honest. I basically recruited someone to come into the church and marry me. Mm. And that's how I got out. Mm. Now, I didn't do that consciously. But when I look back and I'm really honest with myself, I that's what I did. And I, I knew, I kind of knew it was a mistake and I wasn't in love with the man, but I, I wanted out. So Mm. once I got out, then gradually I stopped going to the church and I went to this other church, which was probably by anyone's standards, still a pretty 
what we might call fundamentalist Christian church, but it was woohoo, you know, like the women were allowed to wear pants and people went to movies and women wore jewelry. And so it was like, these people are super racy, you know, they're really getting away with all kinds of stuff. And so I kind of got started gradually getting out. And then I'm, I'm thinking about this now, like exactly how it went. It, it, it was gradual that I just kind of got away a little bit more and more and more. And then I went, I started college. That was a big thing. I started nursing school. I went to a community college and then the world started to really open up and I was working in a health club and I was with my coworkers and they would say after work, let's, we're going out for a beer. Let's go. And I'd say, I would say, I don't drink. And they were like, what do you mean? You don't drink. Everybody drinks. And I was like, no, I, I've never, I don't, I've never had a drink. I don't, you know, I have a drink. And so, but then they would then bring the six pack in here, have a sip, have some. So then, you know, within a few months and now I'm having a drink, oh, let's go dancing. So now I'm out dancing. So for the first time in my mid twenties, I'm doing things that what a lot of people do in their 16, 17 and the whole world opens up. And then, <laughs> well, I, and then that process, I got divorced from the, the man that I recruited Mm-hmm. God bless him. And um, met a Jewish man. And so then I did the really horrible thing is I converted to Judaism. Wow. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. So there's, there is so, there's so much that's happened already. And I'm so <laughs> curious about this story. You know, Cordy and I, we didn't realize A, when we started the church, and B, as we've been developing the podcast, that we were going to be encountering so much religious trauma, mm-hmm. but it is so prevalent. And, you know, I am certainly, uh, I don't want to say a victim, but I have been subject to my fair share as a uh, recovering Catholic. <clears throat> and I'm, I'm so curious for you, like the family dynamic and how that shifted once you started to move away. You you spoke a little bit on your website. I'm, I'm imagining in your book as well, you talk about uh, some of the abuses that occurred through the church. And I'm trying to visualize, you know, the, the size of the congregation, how much of it was family, uh, this secrecy that so often occurs in these small communities is, it's just so tragic. Uh, and yeah, so can you talk a little bit about the shifting family dynamic when you finally started to talk about the abuses experienced and how that, you know, what that did to your relationship with your family outside of the church, even? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's hard to, to look back and say, how did that even happen? And how did that go on? And how did, you know, like, it's not like it happened in another country or, you know, thousands of years ago. It wasn't exactly. that long ago. I mean, it, it, it was, but it, and it wasn't. It was pretty black and white. So there was this, there was not really any gray area. And it was, you're either in or you're out. So there was not a place for questioning. And I remember even being 11 or 12 years old and saying, okay, God is a God of love, but God hates everyone who's not in this church and doing everything that we're doing. So, I mean, it was so extreme. And they, like they talked, I talk about this in my book. We, 
Lee talked about the rapture all the time. Mm -hmm. Like God's coming back and God's going to take the chosen people up to heaven any, any minute it's going to happen at any minute. And you have to stay super clear, clean and holy and spiritual because you could be, you could do everything good and right every day. But if in that moment that God decides the rapture is happening now and you've had one thought of lust or envy or, you know, one, one unholy thought, you're going straight to hell and you're going to burn forever and ever and ever. And that is the way, I mean, it was that extreme, you know, they talk that this fire and brimstone, but it was all the time. It was constant to the point where if I was at the grocery store with my mom and I couldn't find her for a second, I would think the rapture had happened and I was left because I was at least, I was at least smart enough to realize that I was not going to live up to these standards. Like I, I kind of like always knew that I was going to hell. Like, I don't think there was really ever any question. I just was, I was like, I see these rules. I, I know that in my heart, I'm not this level of perfection. So it was this constant fear of, you know, God's coming back and, and I'm lost forever. And one of the things we would do, like as an activity, we would go, they would take us in a bus and we would go to a neighborhood and we would have these little pamphlets. And even as kids, and we would have to go and knock on people's doors and give them these pamphlets that said, essentially, if you don't come to our church, you're going to hell. And and there would be pictures of people burning in hell with boils on their body. I mean, it was really graphic. Mm -hmm. And this was like a Saturday afternoon is what we did. And if you didn't, so we had to, we were told to take your Bible to school every day. And every chance, every conversation that you have with another child is an opportunity to save them, to convert them, to bring them into the fold so they don't go to hell. And it, it sounds like crazy that, but that was my life. Wow. And all the while knowing that you're going to go to hell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like this double bind, like constantly. I, yeah. It, it's, but and then and this was my parents. So it wasn't like I could go home and say, hey, mom, dad, these people are making me do crazy things. So we mm-hmm. should leave this. Mm-hmm. You know, that was not going to happen. You know, it was. There was not a way out. So it was, you know, find a way to be in that or or basically be an orphan. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the choice. But yeah, so so it was pretty when I the the cut, the break in retrospect was pretty pretty sharp. Um, when I left, when I got married, I mean, there was a, maybe a six months to a year where I would still kind of go to church some, but then I was going to my new husband's church, which was like, you know, based on the church I had grown up was a, you know, flipping free for all, you know, mm-hmm. like, it was like my brother and I still laugh. We were like, yeah, those were the fake Christians, you know, because, because they wore jewelry. I mean, it was that intense. Wow. Like, um, so yeah, so when I left and it was, it was, 
I didn't grieve it at the time, but I do think that was part of what I've had to grieve is the loss of my family mm-hmm. because I couldn't, I either was going to have somewhat of a normal life or I was going to stay connected with my family and my family for the most part are still in that church. Mm-hmm. And your brother, you have a relationship with now. Yeah, so he, so he left and then when my, and my sister left and then when my father died, my mom left. Oh, Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, so we, we left and uh, I had one cousin who was about my age. He's maybe a year young. He's about a year younger. And he and I were baptized on the same day. So we were very, had a very similar, you know, trajectory and we were friends on Facebook and he, and I was very nervous about my family reading the book or anybody read. I mean, I really didn't have, I don't really have much contact with them, mm-hmm. but when my cousin, he saw that I wrote a book and he read the book and I was very nervous. Like, what is he going to think or say? And he essentially said, I didn't have the same experience that you had. And Jesus has never failed me. Or something to that effect. And that was the end of the conversation. And I yeah. said, I'm I'm happy that you're good you're good and I love you and I hope I get to see you again someday. Mm. So what I found in myself, uh, my experience is that my family, who I've uh, for the majority of I mean the vast majority of my family, siblings, parents, aunts and uncles. I don't have any contact with uh, because of this you know, dogmatism and uh, insistence that I'm evil uh, for my life. But I am such like in those communities, the one you're talking about, the one that I grew up in, there, there is no willingness to talk about anything other than this kind of ongoing fear based projection of you know, what, what life is, is like, what is it about yourself? And I asked myself this too, how did I get to the place where I want to talk about everything? I don't want any secrets. I don't, I want to talk about everything. And I'm interested to know when was it through your exposure in college or where at in life did you start to be more willing, desirous to have difficult conversations. Hmm. I still don't like difficult conversations. <laughs> oh, well then. No, no. I, I think I think I have. I was blessed with a natural curiosity mm-hmm. about life. I'm just really curious and and intelligence, and I think just looking at something and just saying something simple, like that doesn't make sense. What you're telling me, you know, so another thing that we talked a lot, they talked a lot about was faith healing. And now I do believe in faith, Mm -hmm. you know, and I believe in healing, but they would say, you know, we're going to put our hands on you and God's going to heal you of, and then of, of course I would see people not be healed. And so I had questions about that. Like, what's happening? Like, 
we're wanting you're we're expected to have blind faith and but I'm not seeing what you're saying like the the fruits are not there mm-hmm. like so, so what's what's missing like mm-hmm. what's what's going on so it's a lot of it's just like natural childhood mm. curiosity and then of course that gets shut down with well you're not a believer you know you just trust because god said it and don't ask questions and if you start asking questions, then that's, you know, you're being evil in some yeah. way or that's sinful too. So that's kind of the way to, and, and there was a, one of my good friends and I hadn't talked to her for a long time, like 40 years. And she and I were, were talking about what that was like and the secrecy and, you know, what happened and the trauma that, that happened. And there was things going on in her house around sexual abuse that I was her, one of her best friends and would spend the night there. And I had no idea, but they were also related. They were a lot of the people. When you ask this question, I would say about 50 percent of that church was somehow related through mm-hmm. marriage or through blood. And then there would be people that would come and go around that. But that core family, like if you left, you were excommunicated from the family. There was no you weren't coming for Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas or you were out. Wow. Even as a child. Did did you ever see that happen? Like children were. I saw people like they were there and they were part of it and they were in the fold and then they were just gone and you never saw them again, never heard from them again. Maybe there wasn't. But there wasn't this sense of they're going to a different church now, but we're still friends. Mm. You know, it was just mm-hmm. very black and white. You're either in or you're out. And if you're out, and you want to come back in, we'll pray for you and bring you back in. So there was always that come back anytime. But if you're out, we're not going to accept you or, and even in, so, so this was a Pentecostal church. Mm-hmm. I don't know how familiar you are with, with that, but even in the Pentecostal church, there was this United Pentecostal church. So there were the the ones that were even in that group versus out of that group. And there was a lot of fighting in, even in that group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, how do so, we prevent the psychedelic <laughs> world from doing the same thing? It seems like there already is so much division and infighting and us versus them and how we go about it versus there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from this history if we. If we yes, I think. Well, one of the things you've already said, which is being willing to have difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. For example, I've already seen a little bit in the psychedelic world once someone who was one of my mentors and he was misusing a substance and 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 behaving in a way that was not not good. And so the difficult conversation I had with some of the other you know people who are in this world is, what do we do? You know, like there's not really a governing body mm-hmm. that you that you go to, right? And if someone is misusing a substance, and I know this is just one thing that can happen in this world, is um, 
a lot of, you know, typically people who are misusing a substance are not going to admit it mm-hmm. or they're going to be in mm-hmm. denial about it. You know, for sure. Can- cannabis in particular, I think is yeah. one that's really prevalent. And I know that I've had my journey there and still. Yeah. Do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I have great respect for, you know, these medicines and what they can do, you know, and I'll share a little bit about my journey and how that came. Cause I was not someone who, you know, smoked weed, you know, drank, you know, anything before my introduction to psilocybin, I strongest thing I'd ever had was a shot of tequila. Like, so I was, I didn't have the typical college experience. You know, I didn't do shrooms in my college dorm. Like that, that just was not part of my life. And I grew up in the era was, you know, it was all about the war on drugs. So I did not, I did not learn in school about what had been done with LSD and psilocybin in the fifties and sixties and how I've been used so um, powerfully for people with depression and addiction. This wasn't anything I learned in school and didn't, wasn't anything that I knew about. So for me, like many people, I read Michael Pollan's book, mm-hmm. how to change your mind. I would, I used to listen to the public radio station on my lunch break at work and they were interviewing him about his book. So I listened to that. And then I started reading about what the research was. Cause at that point, so that was about five years ago. Now there, um, it was already 15 years after that, Johns Hopkins research on psilocybin. So there was already mm-hmm. a fair amount of stuff. There's a whole lot more now, even now in the last five years. So there was a pretty good amount of stuff for me to go and research and look into. And then I decided to go to the Netherlands and where psilocybin is legal and have an experience. And it was a four day retreat setting very much using it as a sacrament in ceremony, respectfully with preparation and integration after. And it was the first time I ever felt safe in my body. Hmm. And I just, I didn't even know that I had never felt safe in my body. Hmm. And and this this sense of being at home in my body and yeah so obviously i'm i'm here on psilocybin says talking to you about it so <laughs> obviously it, it was a transformational experience that then impa- impacted my life and so not a surprise because of what happened i i had undiagnosed complex psd ptsd and i was because i was very good at hiding it I had some pretty fairly good adaptations. You know, they cost me and they created depression and anxiety and eventually pain in my body. But I I did surprisingly well considering what I was exposed to as a child, I think. You know, I feel, yeah, I feel pretty grateful about that. Mm-hmm. Are you looking for a community that allows you to authentically express and explore what it means to be human? One that honors the divinity within you and all life? Then Sanctuary may be just the community you have been looking for. Sanctuary is a faith-based organization centered around the sacrament of sacred mushrooms for spiritual exploration and personal development. You are invited to become a member and commune with us. 
Join us for a Sunday Zoom service or a weekend sacred mushroom retreat in the beautiful Kentucky countryside. Visit psantuary.org to become a member and find more information. So you said when you went to the Netherlands, your retreat uh, there consisted of one or two experiences? Just one. One. So have you ever been to the Netherlands or had experience there? I haven't. I did a... You know, mushrooms on the street and met with Socrates and uh, Plato and all the wise ones there. Uh, Yeah. So, you know, in in the Netherlands, they have the the coffee shops or the shops and you just go in and you buy your truffles. It's in a container in a cooler. Mm -hmm. And they had us, they met us. The the group was now called Alalaho, but it was part at that point, the Psychedelic Society out of the UK. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've had some. Stefana Voss. Um, Mm -hmm. she Mm -hmm. was there, she, and she and a a few other of the women were there as our guides. So they met us in town. We bought our truffles and then we, they took us out to the countryside. We were in a house together. There were 12 women and Mm -hmm. we started the inter, the preparation right away with a lot of meditation and yoga and talking in circles and sharing and doing all of that. And then the day of the ceremony, we, we mashed it up. They sent, we, we, had a ceremony, we we talked and had a circle, and then we mashed up our truffles. We took them and prayed over them, and then we came back in, and we um, they poured hot water with lemon and ginger, I think, over them. So we drank it like a tea. Mm-hmm. And we were in a, very much a ceremonial space, and I was terrified. <laughs> I was like... We were, it was funny because a lot of us were wearing white and we had a lot of white blankets. We were in this big room together and, and like going to drink it. And I was thinking, is this some kind of David Koresh Kool-Aid situation? <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. I, I was I was really scared. Well, and with your history, of course, that's. Yeah. Yeah. So, and right. then I got I was the only one that got sick. Mm. I got very sick. I was. Well, we call it getting well. Getting well, yes. I, <laughs> I, 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 I purged a lot. We'll just say. Uh, right. So I was the only one who purged, and I spent the first like two hours in um, in the bathroom, and everybody else was mm-hmm. out and they had their music and they were having their experience, and I was just laying, and I was feeling really sad. Like this isn't going to work. This isn't helping me. You know, I'm not doing this right. And is this the way I'm supposed to be feeling? And then I realized that I was actually having a conversation with the mushroom. Mm-hmm. And the mushroom said to me, you realize you're talking to a mushroom. Do you really think this still isn't working? Like it was like, and I was like, oh yeah. Okay. (laughs) And it was, it was very much like meeting an old relative, Mm. like a sister. That's what it felt like. And, and I even said to her, why, why did I have to purge? And she said, well, you know, I was a little pissed off at you because you've been gone so long. So it was like the sister that says, like, they're mad at you because you've been gone so long, but then they're really super happy to see you. Like, that's, it felt like a homecoming mm-hmm. to me. And it felt very familiar. It, 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 it was like, 
the most unfamiliar and the most familiar experience that I've ever had at the same time. Wow. That's pretty, it's very brave of you to uh, make the decision to do that, to travel to another country, which I'm, I guess I'm just assuming you hadn't been no. to the Netherlands at that point. Yeah. And just considering all that you said about your childhood and staying like in the same town and to decide to do that with women that you didn't know. Yeah. Um, that's very brave. It is kind of brave. I had been, um, I knew about ayahuasca. I had a friend who had been to an ayahuasca ceremony about 10 years prior. And at that point, I was very early on. I mean, I think we're all on a spiritual journey, but let's just say I was, I was became conscious that I was on a spiritual journey and became more of a conscious seeker because I was having a lot of pain in my body and I didn't understand why. Really, that's what set me off on the depression and the anxiety I'd been dealing with for so long that I was just like, okay, that's just the way I am. But the pain in my body was like, I, I'm not going to accept this. Like, I don't know what this is and, and I'm going to find out what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so I explored all conventional Western medicine had and was going from doctor to doctor and trying and this and that and the other. And finally I said, all right, I guess I'm just going to have to accept that I have chronic pain now. Let me go take some stupid meditation class and learn how to meditate you know like this is ridiculous you know, I was angry pissed off and it just so happened that my meditation teacher was a minister and was at a college and I told her what was going on and she handed me a bag of cassette tapes hmm. Courtney you probably have never had a cassette tape have you <laughs> I did actually. Uh, oh shit! I used to carry a boombox around in my first car. I used to dub radio uh, songs to okay, like cassette yeah. tapes. Actually, okay. So it was it was Carolyn Mace. Have you guys heard heard of Carolyn Mace? M Y S S. It was her book, uh, Anatomy of the Spirit. Hmm. And in her book, so she is a medical intuitive. And she was able to track energetically how people's unhealed emotional stuff mm. would eventually show up as illness. So this was a whole new concept. Mm, but once I, yeah. once I read that, then I was like, Oh, there are some, maybe, I mean, it sounds ridiculous saying it now, but I was like, maybe there's some connection between what happened to me as a child mm. and this pain I have in my body. Like that just had never occurred to me. It occurred to me that the depression and the anxiety, yes, but the pain in my body, like that got my attention. Like, okay, this is deep. Mm-hmm. You know, something else is going. And I had actually had, well, I won't go into it. I had had some other health problems and still it just kind of went right over my head that it had anything to do with. Um, and that's a lot about what I write about in my book is what happened in my body as a result of what happened to me as, as a child. So were you involved in healthcare at this point? Yeah. So I became a nurse. So, you know, I wanted to save people and I guess I I figured I couldn't do it through religion. So I would do it through science. So I became a nurse. So I'm going to be, I'm going to save people through being a nurse. And very quickly in the healthcare system, I looked around and said, "Uh uh-uh, this isn't, this is not working. Like we're not making people well. Like, 
You know, so I, I was even asked, so I started asking those questions like first year as a nurse, like mm. what's going on here? Like what's happening? We're, we're not like, I could see people were not getting well. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, am I in another cult? Like, mm. <laughs> and honestly, a good question. <laughs> I think it is. Uh, I think you're right. I think there is very much a cult of science. I do too. Mm-hmm. I do too. Mm. And in a way, the second part of my journey is about leaving that cult mm. wow. because that cult was also making me sick. When I left that cult, I was on a handful of medicines. I was losing weight. My hair was falling out. My body was falling apart. Wow. <laughs> I'm so glad you're, you're saying it like that because that is, it's, it's a powerful statement. It's, it's, it's strong, true. but um, it's my well, experience. Well, well it, and it's the experience of so many others, but I don't know that we have permission to use that language, right? We talk about we can talk about every religion under the sun as a cult, but when we start to talk about science as and culty cultish behavior in yeah. science, then you are immediately kind of ostracized yeah. uh, in the public. So is science is religion in plain hiding in plain sight? Oh God, I love that. Yeah, I mean, I think um, being where we're at now with Sanctuary and all of the other uh, plant medicine churches that are opening all around the country right now, I think that's that right there is why (laughs) we are all kind of rising up and ready for a new uh, non-dogmatic spirituality approach uh, as community. So, and community is so important. Oh, it's it's where it's at. You know, you can t- you can take the psychedelics away if you have a healthy, supportive community. Yeah, and you still have a healthy, supportive community. If you add yeah. psychedelics in, then you know that can uh, just expedite the healing and facilitate further bonding, of course. Um, but, you know, we saw from our experience in Jamaica running retreats there, there are, there, there is an aspect of psychedelic culture that does not have community built in. Mm-hmm. And I think that these retreats... It's, it's a mistake. It's a mistake. It's, it's mm-hmm. absolutely a mistake. And that is, again, leaning on this religion of science as if somehow... You know, just all you've got to do is reset your default mode network and, you know, you've got a new life ahead of you. And that's just plain and simple is not the case. And trying to help people understand that in the in the face of so much. uh, I don't want to say propaganda. I think it's misguided uh, attempts to educate, you know, Mm -hmm. even pollen. Thank I'm so thankful for what Michael Pollan has done. But. I don't remember him in anywhere in his book talking about the essential role of community for ongoing maintenance of health. And I think that's part of our culture. We still have this magic bullet. Let me take a pill and get back to my normal life. Mm -hmm. Um, Fantasy, because it Mm -hmm. is a fantasy. (laughs) Yeah. Normal Um, life is a fantasy. Yeah, that's true, too. But but the idea, and, you know, when I work with people, it's, and I tell them this, I say, you need three things for this to be a transformational choice for you. You need daily discipline. 
and it can be whatever it is, but you, you, there needs to be some, some intentional, um, effort to connect with your deeper self, your higher self, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Right. There needs to be something that you do every day, some breath work, some pick, pick whatever it is, but some kind of daily discipline. There needs to be a, a person that you can talk to one-on-one because I think that is of great value. And that could be a community leader. It could be, uh, you know, I think there's a reason why the AA program, love it or hate it, has had better success than like almost any organization because they have these elements. They have, so they have daily disciplines they have sponsor slash sponsee. They have that one-on-one and they have group meetings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's there. Like, like the care of keeping the care and keeping of humans is, is there. But I think my experience is that a lot of trauma happened in community. And so it's natural to want to pull away from that and to, and it's like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So then you blame community for it, but it, it wasn't the community. It was that, you know, community wasn't, it became a container for secrecy and isolation instead of for support. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I kind of lost my train of thought there. Yeah. It takes, um, <laughs> as you're speaking about this and, and community and uh it's bringing up for me i mean now with sanctuary so we have almost 200 members and i will say like we've seen and we'll probably continue to see how important uh really really good communication skills are when it comes to community when you start trying to mix all these different elements of life and work together um, it presents challenging conversations. Like you talk about integration in real time, day to day, week after week. Well, then you start actually seeing everybody's stuff come up <laughs> in real time as you're trying to plan things together as a community. And, yeah. and you're trying to work with where people are at and like, let's meet I mean, I want to meet you where you're at and you need to meet me where I'm at. And that takes a lot of, a lot of talking and sharing uncomfortable truths about how we're feeling. And um, I really love it. And at the same time, it's a lot of work. It takes it a is. lot of energy it is. to have those conversations on a regular basis. Uh, so, but it's what we need to do. It's what we need to practice. Yeah doing more. I mean, those courageous, I call them courageous conversations. Like they, they, they are where the integration really happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that's where that rubber meets the road, you know? And, and I tell people like what I want for you for having gone through this is that when you're standing in your kitchen, talking to your loved one, you can be different. If that doesn't happen, it was all a waste. Mm-hmm. You can't show up differently at the grocery store, you know, then what was the point? Yeah. 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 It was just a, uh, just a ride. You, so, just, you, you had a cool experience. So, right. you know. Right. 
Well, where, where are you now in your personal practice and in working with others with, with psychedelics overall or psilocybin specifically? Yeah, that's been a journey too. Um, so I was working with psilocybin. So I, I'm affiliated with the Divine Assembly. Oh, awesome. Okay. Yeah, I yeah. just interviewed Steve. We're working Steve on some. Steve yeah. yeah, actually. So one of my mentors introduced me to him, and I met him while he was just starting the church. Mm-hmm. So that's been my affiliation using uh, and using psilocybin as a sacrament in, in religious ceremony. And, and I've, I've, you know, it's one of those things where I've really struggled struggle with it because in my heart and my soul and my body, I know it's the right thing to, for people to have access to it because I know, I believe, because I knew all the things that I had done. I had done meditation. I'd done yoga. I had been to shamans. I had done all this other work, but until I had an embodied experience of safety facilitated by psilocybin I was stuck. Now, I don't think that's true for everybody. So I'm not here to say that's, you know, that's the case for everybody, but that is my true experience. And so morally, ethically, for that, for anybody to have the right to take that opportunity away from me or from anybody else, I feel is, is ethically, morally wrong. Yes. And so... You know, I, I am aware that psilocybin is illegal. And I actually had I met with a therapist recently and she was saying, well, that's illegal. And, I, and, and I'm here in the deep south. Mm-hmm. I said, wasn't that long ago that freeing a slave was illegal, too? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was that ever more? Was having voting, a slave ever? I mean, like right. So alcohol. it's like it's like all of these things that and I think that's whoever the people are that are able to stand up and say the law is immoral. Mm -hmm. The law is not ethical. Yes. Mm -hmm. This is an unethical law. (laughs) Yeah. Unconstitutional. It's unconstitutional. It's unethical. And so that's, that's where I stand, you know, as a woman with the right to connect with the divine and that is my right. That is my, I believe that's my birthright. And, um, you know, that, that, that colors outside of the line as, you know, as a healthcare professional, right? Like mm-hmm. that's, that's mm-hmm. colors oh. outside of the line. Maybe so I, and all of the, well, one of the things I do, I actually work in an opiate recovery center. So I, I can I oh, can wow. see the damage mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. a legal oh, don't even get me started. Um, <laughs> because I, could, I, I mean, I could really just get I get I'm so upset about this because mm-hmm. I, I just see firsthand. I mean, the devastation, people living in their cars alone. You know, that's even if they're lucky to have a car or living on the street, you know, because of the devastation wrought by, in my opinion, unresolved trauma. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, a human being in their right mind is not going to destroy themselves. Right. 
that's just not going to happen. So there's some element of that person is not in their right mind. And so how did that happen? Certainly. Right. And so I do believe that psilocybin specifically can be transformational. So I don't want to minimize it or, or talk down about it in any way. But I think that, like you've already mentioned, the danger is then it just becomes the, the magic bullet, you know, or and another way. Because people can use anything to escape. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I know people that have, you know, been somewhere and had ayahuasca like 50 times. Yeah. And when I hear that, it's like mother ayahuasca or grandmother is going to tell you the same thing every single time. Like, why do you need to hear the same message? You know, I certainly understand that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do. Um, I think because we don't have a shamanic framework in our culture that we tend to forget that there are other um levels of application for these tools, right? That you, my experience having taken mushrooms well over 500 times uh, is that there is a consistency in messaging, but there are levels of awareness and understanding that can be attained that then provide a different access point to be a more effective support for those within the space. And so I will very often take psilocybin with the people that I'm working with mm-hmm. and and not using it as necessarily as much of a, you know, I need to learn about myself right now. It is helped me become aware, more aware, tangibly aware of my higher self, my other abilities mm-hmm. to be a support. So I think in time we will see this in our culture as we get more um, deeply embedded or as psychedelics become more deeply embedded into our wellness and lifestyle practices that there, there are certain people and it's just like in shamanic cultures, not, not everyone was Mm -hmm. using the medicine in that way, Mm -hmm. but we will see that a certain percentage of practitioners, um, kind of go beyond this using the medicine to, um, get some kind of a message or a mm-hmm. clarity necessarily. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what it's resonating for me in that is a couple things. One is there's so much to explore and learn mm-hmm. about how this is really going to be part of our world. Mm-hmm. And it's just now scratching the surface. And then you know, the, the closest I can relate it to is the shaman in the ayahuasca ceremony. They drink ayahuasca and it's like because they are traveling in that dimension with you mm-hmm. as your guide, they're they're in that different frequency, that different space, that different, you know, whatever, that different world, that non-ordinary world where you can access. And I do think you know, that's not something I've ever experienced, but I could certainly see where there would be value in in that. Mm-hmm. So what is your personal practice like? How are, how are you continuing, if so, continuing to engage with psilocybin? So currently I microdose. I, it's like what's smaller than a micro, like a micro, micro, micro. <laughs> it's, it's like it's like like 
tiny, the tiniest bit once, because I'm extremely sensitive. And this is one thing I learned over time, which is probably why I purged the first time, mm-hmm. you know, like a, 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 I have a, a response to one gram that most people have to three or four. Mm-hmm. I can understand that one gram and I can see all my ancestors when I look in the mirror I mean I can see all the way I can actually even look at my dogs and see all of their ancestors with one gram like I mm-hmm. that's and you know that just takes a while to get to know that mm-hmm. um so I, I do the microdose once a week and that's what I've landed on that and I can that's plenty for me works just fine for me and then I have experience so in the beginning so I had my big dose in the Netherlands and then I had about six months later I had another macro dose experience and then I had a third one and then I so in the past maybe every six months I would say I have a what I would call for me a macro dose and then I have on a like on occasion done what some people call a museum dose Mm-hmm. where I'm definitely in a non-ordinary state of consciousness, but I'm not that deep. And I have, I have experienced benefits of that kind of in between dose too, mm-hmm. where I can, it's, I feel a little bit more like I'm in this world, but I'm also in that world and I'm, I'm in between mm-hmm. those two things. So that that's where I am right now. I have had some ayahuasca experiences and I've gotten benefit from that. I'm not sure that I will ever do that again. Um, <laughs> I've done it twice. For me, I, I tend to, at the end of it, when it's all said and done, I tend to get the same same amount of healing from the psilocybin experience without the physical discomfort of mm-hmm. the ayahuasca. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And then I also worked with, Uh, a therapist doing MDMA for Mm -hmm. trauma. So I've had that experience and I, I can see where it's very, um, it's a good medicine if you're going to be in talk therapy, because you're very typically very talkative with MDMA. So it's, it lends itself well to that, but I didn't like how I felt afterwards. Mm -hmm. I felt very harsh, like, for me, when I have a psilocybin experience, it feels like I've done something good for my brain and my body. It feels there's no downside. There's no negative. There's no like hangover or bad feeling. With MDMA, I felt like bad. Hmm. Um, not terrible. You know, you know, people talk about wanting to commit suicide after. I, like I didn't feel that, but I felt like a little fried. That's the best way I can describe it. And then I do work with ketamine with with patients, clients, and I've had a ketamine experience, which was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. It's like a near-death experience. Um, and I had a DMT experience with a shaman, with mm. the, the toad medicine, which was really powerful. Wow. Um, so I'm really curious how, um, how your journey with psychedelics and psilocybin in particular, how that's informed your, your view on what we could call God or Mm. consciousness, um, you know, especially considering your childhood and growing up in the church and that view of the going to get me God, Mm -hmm. (laughs) someone put so well on a recent podcast. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, how, where are you now with, 
your spirituality? It's ever evolving. Mm-hmm. And at this, what I feel, what I experience with psilocybin is that I am the earth. Mm-hmm. And so I would say if I had to put a name on this entity, it would be Gaia. And I'm an emanation of her. Mm. I'm this manifestation of her. So not, and, and when in a psilocybin experience, I can really experience, you know, that, you know, that my, the trees are my sisters and brothers and the plants are my, you know, so I can feel that. I wish I would like to be able to actually feel that that connected more. Um, but I would say that that deep connection, feeling loved and supported and and wanted as I am. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's the thing. Like just just totally wanted um, and not having to prove anything or do anything or or just, you know, do it to deserve that. Mm-hmm. Like, and it, it's, I am a mother, I have two daughters. So it feels very much like a mother's love. Like, like when a baby is born and, a, and you hold that, you're not looking at the child thinking anything other than this child is perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is a perfect child, you know? So yeah. yeah. On my best days, that's how I feel. <laughs> I was just talking to someone before we got on the call that's going to be holding space for someone else for the first time. Hmm. And I said, it looks like you're just sitting around (laughs) (laughs) and, and getting people a tissue or helping them to the bathroom or, you know, like holding their hand, but don't be surprised if you are absolutely exhausted and yeah. Some very intense stuff comes up for you. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, I think that's probably one of the aspects of this work that is not discussed enough. Um, and equally so, the healing and the energizing that can come from a shared experience as well, it, it very often, I'm strongly reminded particularly as as the the medicine is coming on and kind of on the way out the door when I'm there with folks how how fortunate we are as practitioners to receive this kind of um, transfer of healing energy uh, but you're so right that it it demands ongoing personal work so that we can continue to release and allow all of that to move through and become a more clean vessel for that that energy and as a support of others. And I think that's also, you know, that brings up the importance of community and as as the landscape shifts in our culture with psychedelics and I expect as it is now, it will move more and more towards this community model. Our community can, can, and we've seen it with sanctuary so much more uh, than we did in Jamaica, thankfully, that our community is holding space for each other. As we all learn how to do that better 
through our sacred circles that we have every week, which is just, you know, like getting together and talking, you know, there's no sacrament involved there, but just learning how to do that for each other is so much better (laughs) for everybody because then it's not, you know, totally on the practitioner uh, who is holding that space to do it ongoing. Well, it's like Laura said, you know, it's, it's about empowerment. That's ultimately what we want to do. I'm, I don't trip sit for people so that just to be a support, I'm there with them to help them get to the point where hopefully they can support themselves if they feel so inclined or they become a support to others because mm-hmm. yeah, what you're saying is so true that it it is this kind of revolving door of us helping each other and something that came up for me I mean, I know it's always, it's there constantly, um, but I expressed it within our community for the first time in this dynamic that we have. And I'm, I'm curious if you experience this as well, where it's more of a level playing field versus me being the most experienced person in the room. And I'm the, the go-to guy. I do not want that. I do not like that. I, I cannot remember a time in 23 years when I have not been the support person, I have always been the most experienced person there and have always had to be. And even times when I think, all right, I'm going in with people who are experienced and competent. I'm not going to have to support anybody else. <laughs> it always happens. Uh, so this, what we're talking about, developing this as a cultural practice is so crucial uh, to maintaining the health of all the practitioners. Yeah. So do you, what are, what are your thoughts? You know, you've been involved in this um, hierarchical medical community where mm-hmm. you've got, you know, all these, these, the ones who are in the know, who are educating those who aren't, what, what are some of the pitfalls that we want to avoid and how can we avoid becoming a similar thing? Yeah. Right. Well, Wherever you go, there you are. (laughs) So I, what I've seen is, you know, people that have issues with feeling competitive, you know, so whatever their, their stuff is, and I've actually experienced this. I do think there's some truth. So this is the thing. I do think there's some truth to, we each bring our gifts to the circle, to the, but none of us are better than anyone else. And so the, the paradox of that, right? Like how can we hold it that we can collaborate? We can be unique because I do think it's true. Like Eric, if, if someone was in ceremony with you and you're holding space versus ceremony with me, it probably would be a different experience for them. Certainly. Not better. Mm-hmm just different because you're different, you know, and, and I think I, I, ultimately, I think we are the medicine mm-hmm. 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 <laughs> and the psilocybin yeah. is helping us to become the medicine that we are. Mm-hmm. Love yes. that. Yes. And so if I'm the medicine, you know, that means wherever I go, wherever I show up, I'm the medicine. And so I bring, it's like a signature or a scent or whatever it is, a flavor, mm-hmm. you know, we each have our unique scent and our flavor and our, and that's good. It's not bad. And we don't need to be in competition because like my scent flavor is not better than someone else's, but it's cool that it's different. It's unique. Um, so I do think moving from that competition, you know, 
model to the collaborative model mm-hmm. is is a growth edge for humanity in general. Yes. Yes. Right? It's going to show up everywhere in politics and medicine and in the psychedelic. I do think because the psychedelic space is such a hotbed, mm-hmm. you know, that it's, it's going to be amplified. It's going to be amplified, but I don't think it's separate from what's just going on on the whole planet. Like mm-hmm. shifting to, you know, honoring the earth, honoring each other, honoring our bodies, um, honoring our relationships. And then the other thing I would say is I, I think all of our wounding has happened in relationship and whether that's relationship with the earth relationship with our body or relationship with our parents or siblings, whoever, and all of the healing is going to happen in relationships. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is yes. not a do it yourself Yes. Mm. Yes. I try to help people understand that when they, you know, there are some who are just determined to have a private ceremony. And Mm -hmm. if that's really, if that's what needs to happen for the time being well and good, but it it is in the dynamics of interpersonal relationships where all of our triggers are exposed and where we actually have the opportunity to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. We haven't uh, we haven't talked about your book at all, but I would really love to hear about your book from Wounds to Wisdom. Yeah, and and actually, I'm actually yeah. got my microphone stacked on some right here, so I got nice. <laughs> so what um, like, what what led you to write this book? Like, I want to hear about that and the message you want to share. Hmm. Book. I wrote the book for myself. Mm. I, I wanted. Yeah, I wrote it for my, I've been writing since I was about 11 years old. I had, I decided I was going to journal and I got some notebook paper and some yellow yarn and made myself a, a, a <laughs> my own journal. I actually still have it. <laughs> and, and it's good that I have it because actually there were things that I didn't remember. Um, this happens a lot with trauma that you don't remember the sequence of events or because um, I had. I had something pretty tragic happen. Then I had a suicide attempt and my, and for decades, I thought they were a year apart. And until I got that journal out, I didn't realize that they were only three, it was three weeks. Oh, wow. Between wow. the trauma and the suicide attempt. I just, so it's, it's funny how the mind can play tricks on me. Mm-hmm. So, so I wrote it for myself and, but I also wanted to, I, w- I wanted to have, to share in a way that felt accessible to people. And I have gotten feedback. So I think I, I was able to communicate this that I don't see if I can find the right words to say it, that that spirituality is unseen science and science is unseen spirituality. Like they are the same. Mm-hmm. And they come together in the body. The body is, you know, the kingdom of heaven is within. And I wanted to, to get that point across through telling my own story. And then in the book, I take people through the energy centers and I talk about the body. I talk about the hormones and the bodies and the glands and the organs. Like this is, 
This is not a far off someday, one day, someplace else. It's here. Like, this is it. Like this, you know, and, and I take people through the energy centers and then I talk about the pineal gland and, and the ability to connect because, you know, to, to consciously connect with whatever this is that we're connecting with, that the pearly gates are in here. Inside, yes, and so I, I just want. I felt like there are definitely a lot of books on the body and a lot of books on spirituality. So I thought what I could bring and what I wanted to bring was a real blend. And in a way, and I tell some pretty, you know, graphic stories in the book, but in a way that really made it real. Like I, mm-hmm. I wanted, I wanted to make this real for for people that maybe don't see the connection or think that their spirit or their soul is separate than their body, that it's not, that it's not all together. And uh, I also wanted to, so I do have, I have a course that I offer. So I've had people that reach out to me and I wanted to have something that they could read. That was, my book isn't that that long. It's pretty easy, easy to read quick is they could read that book and say, I really, really like what this woman is about. And I want more of that or mm-hmm. no, not for me. And so I wanted to have for that. I found I was having trouble explaining to people what I do and how I do it. And, you know, I would have a 30 minute consultation with them and, and they would either be completely confused and I would be like frustrated. So I'm like, let me just write it out and then people can read it at their own pace and then they'll they'll either be like, I get this, I want this, this is this is what I've been looking for my whole life. They, where have you been? Or I don't want anything to do with her. And either one is fine with me, but I wanted to. And I think maybe I felt I felt strong enough to take that stand and say, mm-hmm. this is what I'm all about. This is my message. Like it, love me, leave, you know, or leave me. Like I'm good either way. <laughs> and. Um, yeah, and, and I did it in part for my daughters so they know, I think, sorry, it makes me a little emotional, mm. is I believe in the power of stories. And my sister did not make it. And she, she died from um, complications of opiate addiction. And mm. so... She did not get to tell her story. So I did it for her, for my daughters, just for for all the people that haven't been able to tell their story. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for mm. being brave enough to do that, to put it on paper, um, not just for your family, but uh, for all of those that will be impacted. Um, know your daughters I'm sure will just spread spread that message and um it'll have a ripple effect into the world so yeah yeah it's uh and I do talk about my my relationship with psilocybin in the book Mm. chapter seven or eight so yeah I do talk about the story that I shared with you today how I read the book and went to the Netherlands and what that meant to me and Awesome. Well, I love that you highlight the power of story. Um, and, you know, I know that's part, it, it's to some extent, uh, 
part of our culture. It is human, what humans are. We are our stories. Right? Exactly. As we, as yes. we show up every day, we're the story that we tell every day. Yeah. are the stories that we've experienced in the past. And um, I, I have thought as a storyteller myself, uh, coming from this Southern background where that's what you do <laughs> to entertain each other. Yeah. <laughs> but I, it seems like we're, to some extent, it feels like we're losing as a culture the power of story. You know, like there's so, so much of our social media is it's just kind of snippets. Yeah. Uh, and we get just very small windows into what makes a person who they are. And every single, that's one of the most, we had this, this uh, circle, the sacred circle that we had Wednesday night, you know, an, an individual who is there just very quiet, unassuming, just very, you know, radiating this piece and i just asked him one question that allowed him to share his story and he became such a dynamic powerful impact on everyone else in that circle and it just kind of smacked me in the face again as i've experienced within the mushroom space and just in working and getting to know people the the wealth that we all have within us, this kingdom of heaven, like you so mm -hmm. aptly said, that is within us. And as we open those doors and invite others in, that we inspire them to share themselves, yeah. to connect deeper, to realize that we are so much more than just this kind of passing through of each other's lives. We are so powerful. It's beautiful. Yeah. Mm. And, and I do think, I don't, I think we don't use the power of story like our ancestors did, but we have not lost um, because even just you sharing that, you know, when that person told their story and it impacted everyone mm -hmm. because we're wired to respond to stories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why I use the hero's journey and, and invite people to tell their story in a way that, they're the hero in their story because yes. that's that's what needs to happen. Not not that they're better than anyone else, but they're as you know they're equal. Mm -hmm. Yes, and up to the challenge. Yes, <clears throat> and we all are. We all are. It just sometimes just requires that encouragement from someone outside mm -hmm. of us. Yeah, or to hear an inspiring story. Or to hear <laughs> that. Yeah, which that that is oftentimes the encouragement is the stories that others mm -hmm. tell. And also, you know, it struck me, um, I love this. I just want to kind of celebrate this a little bit. Having come out of the retreat world, um, and, you know, we're still kind of, to some extent, processing all of that, and to some extent, recovering from all of that, because we just dumped our lives into seven years in Jamaica of supporting, you know, 15 people for a week, two times a month, and it and so much trauma and so much you know, expectation and everything that was wrapped up in that. And then to top that off with, there was this sense of we've got to stay on top of it. We've got to be keep the competitive edge. And when you said that you're working with the Divine Assembly, my heart celebrated. I was like, oh, that's so awesome. I yes. love Steve. I love what he's doing. I love seeing how this is spreading. And so just acknowledging this shifting perspective that is going to be really, really important to bring into not just the psychedelic space, but 
like you said, Laura, into humanity if we are going to transcend this stuckness where we are. I mean, we're in this together. Yes. Yes. (laughs) You know, we rise and fall together. Yes. That's the deeper truth. Yes. 100%. Wow. It has been such a pleasure talking yeah. to you and just getting to know you. You know, we're just Thank we're just you. getting to know each other. And uh, really, Likewise. I, well, I also want to say, you know, the massive amount of respect that I have for you doing this work in uh, North Carolina. Like this is well, like, I'm in South Carolina. So, I'm sorry, South Carolina. You, you are either one, north or south. I know. <laughs> neither, neither one is, uh, you know, like a, a bellwether of, uh, you know, cultural progressive progressiveness uh so i just really admire that you are standing up for this work and and demanding that this be recognized that this is our birthright this is the oldest known sacrament if you will that has been healing people for millennia and it's going to take people like yourself who are willing to stand up and take a few arrows uh to help really move this forward so thank you so much for Mm -hmm. the work that you're doing Yes. Thank you for your authenticity and being an open book. uh, We need a church here in South Carolina. Starting this church was, it's not been easy by any means, but the work that Courtney did really, I mean, Courtney did so much background work uh, of, of building the infrastructure that this, I feel like has been quite a bit easier. And then factoring that it is a community rather than, you know, five people trying to create a business. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it, it it's just a whole different energy, just not seeing people as employees, mm-hmm. uh, seeing mm-hmm. people as like just a team working together and on a similar mission and just open to it having its own personality in different ways. Like this isn't our personality. This is oh, you, like you're joining us. Now you get to bring your perspective and have an opinion that makes this better. And, uh, you know, instead of the more like corporate for-profit model, which is like, okay, we've decided what our personality is. And now you are going to come on board and you're going to conform to it. Right. Which is very like what you were, as you were telling your story about um, your small, the small town cult, you know, Mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of um, yeah, yeah. I mean that corporation. <laughs> that kind of group mentality can exist anywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where, yeah, we don't we don't need to go down that rabbit hole, but yeah. it, it can <laughs> exist. You know, in in a business, in a family, in a church. You know, in politics. Yeah. The biggest question we keep asking ourselves is how you know if if we are building something that. Um, will outlive us, hopefully, then how do we prevent it from going down the, the same route that other religious spiritual organizations have done? And I think, you know, in large part, this, the way that we are so, we are so encouraging of rapid evolution uh, seems to be the best way. So this is a big topic for us as a society to try to wrap our head around how do we avoid this um, um, fetishism of traditionalism? You know, like things have to change. And we see this, you know, people resisted the car for the horse. They wanted <laughs> to stay on the horse, you know, and we're, 
I find myself doing the same thing in terms of technology, sometimes resisting the evolution of technology when the answer is to embrace it and see how we can use it conscientiously to create a more connected world. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's baked into life itself. Mm. Life rewards the, those who can adapt. Yes. And those who cannot life does not reward. I mean, that's not, it's not personal. It's just the way it is. Mm. <laughs> that's so true so true we're, we're seeing that play out you know it's been it's been a few hundred years for some of these organizations <laughs> catholicism uh, but we're seeing how the stagnancy ultimately plays out and i do love how life keeps moving yeah. well, wrap us up here laura tell us what psilocybin says to you psilocybin says i love you so glad you're here. You're doing great. And yeah, keep it up. Beautiful. (laughs) Beautiful. It has said the same thing to me many times. (laughs) Well, thank you. Interesting how she has that message. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. (laughs) It's a good and simple one. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Laura. It's been a real pleasure. Mm -hmm.